Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We all have a story to tell. Welcome to Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We, of course, a podcast going beyond the bads to allow members of law enforcement, public safety, and first response a place to tell their stories and talk about the cases that have impacted their lives. Glad to have you guys along. I'm your co-host, Brent Hinson. And today, we're going to talk about a topic that, unfortunately, remains in our national conversation, that being school shootings. And our guest today is one of the leaders in advocating for change so that all children can learn in a safe environment. It's going to be an in-depth discussion, one that uh, I'm looking forward to to get some different perspectives. But before we bring in our guest today, allow me to welcome in the host of Between the Lines, Mr. Michael Warren. How are you, sir? I'm good, Brent. I, I'll be honest with you. This has been a really emotional week. Very much so. And I, I'm not ashamed to admit that I, I've shed some tears. And uh, as much as I have been looking forward to the opportunity to speak with our guest today, uh, there's also been a, a little sense of dread because the topic matter is, is so overwhelming. Sure. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, as uh, just a parent, it's, it's, it's hard to even talk about the subject matter, but it's one that we need to really dive into and trying our best to figure out why and what we can do and how to be proactive in making sure these things don't happen again. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, why don't you go ahead and let's bring him in and let's go ahead and start talking. Well, our guest today is a national school safety advocate, his son, Alex, one of 17 victims murdered in the Parkland school shooting on Valentine's Day 2018. He's the founder and executive director of Safe Schools for Alex. Since that horrible Parkland shooting five years ago, he's worked alongside members of Congress, leaders of all major federal agencies and presidents of the United States to make schools safer. We are humbled and uh, very appreciative that he's made time for us today to come on the podcast, Mr. Max Schachter. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's an honor to have you with us. Thank you for having me, Brent. Max, uh, we're just going to get right into it because there's no easy way to transition into this topic. Uh, but for our listeners, uh, I was blessed to meet you uh, back in October in Dallas at IACP. And when, when I found out who you were, man, I was blown away by your story and, and by your strength. Because as Brent said, as a parent, I, I don't know how you do this, dude. And, and this week, especially, uh, we're, we're at the fifth year anniversary of this event. So I, I guess... Uh, I would, what I would like to know first off is this horrific shooting. How did you f initially find out what was going on at the school? I was at, it was Valentine's day of, of 2018. And I was out to lunch with, with my wife. And then when I got home, uh, my, I'm on a, Alex was in the band. He was in the marching band. So I'm on a, uh, a group me chat and the band app just started going berserk. Um, I still kept getting all these notifications. And so I started looking at it and they, they said that there was a, a shooting at, at Alex's school. And initially your, your head is at least mine was, well, I'm sure it's probably a mistake. Uh, if there was, I'm sure Alex is okay. Um, you don't want to ever believe that, that something horrible has happened to your, your child. So, I said, oh, I better, I better head over there. So I got in the car and, and drove over to the school. And, um, and as I arrived, I knew something, something major was going on because the cars were just backed up all over the place. Everybody was double parked. There was this cul-de-sac or this like roundabout that 
you know, it was on the way to the school and there were cars all around. And I just, I just parked in the middle of the street in the roundabout and, and got out and walked to the school pretty, pretty casually. Um, you know, again, not thinking that, that anything bad was, was going to happen to my little boy. And, uh, as I, as I got closer, I'm like, ah, this is ridiculous. And I, I headed back to the car. And then I say, and then as I, uh, went back to the car, I got a call from my wife and I pick up the phone and, and she's crying and she's screaming at me. And she says, uh, she says, Max, you, you better get to that school said, um, I'm here, but the, there's all these cops. I said, I can't, I can't get closer. I said, uh, SWAT was blocking everything off. And she said, she said, no, you, you gotta get there. She said, you don't understand. She says, Alex has been shot. And I said, what are you talking about? She said, um, uh, one of Alex's friends was in his class and um, and saw him 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 shot and uh, and she called she called my wife and and told her and so I I turned around and I I I ran back to the school and I ran to uh, to SWAT and and he said uh, sorry sir you can't you can't move any further and uh, and I said I said. Uh, Okay. So then I went, I went back, uh, like behind the houses and behind the berm. I'm like trying to make another effort to get, to get to the school. And I, I go back like behind everything and I come out again and there's, there's SWAT there again. And he's like, he's like, I said, no, you don't understand. I said, I got to get there. My, my son was shot. And he said, don't worry, sir. Uh, anyone that shot is, is no longer in the school. They're at the hospital, you know? And I'm like, okay, you know, Alex is at the hospital. He's okay. You know, um, your mind just never wants to go to that, that horrible place. So then, uh, you know, I'm calling everyone. I have a, a friend of mine that's a physician and trying to get him to find Alex, which hospital is he at? I'm asking the cops, they have no idea. And so then we started to head to a hospital and, and we got to the hospital and, um, you know, just, just crying. And it's just, just a chaotic scene at the hospital. They don't know anything. And, um, we're sitting there for a while. And finally, uh, one of the, one of the, uh, nurses comes, comes to me and she says, she says, Oh, Mr. Schachter, don't worry. We found your son. I said, I said, that's great. So she said, he's, he's in the, uh, he's in the ER. I said, great. She said, I'll bring you, I'll bring you through the back way. And, um, I go in there and she says, Oh, he's in that room right there. I said, fantastic. I go in there and expecting to see Alex and the bed is empty. I said, where is he? She said, Oh, he must be in surgery. And so, um, I come to find out that it wasn't Alex Schachter. It was Alex Dwaret, another little boy that was shot that day. Um, then they come to me and they say, he's not here. Can't find him. Talk to everybody. Police don't know where he is. So then we found out I had all family members fanning out to different hospitals, trying to find him. Nobody could locate him. And uh, and so we heard that the family uh, reunification center was the Marriott. So we we you know we must have been doing a hundred on the highway to get we're on the shoulder to try to get to the family reunification center. It's, it's bumper to bumper traffic because you got, you got helicopters everywhere and uh, we're on the shoulder. We finally arrive at the, at the Marriott and it's a huge conference room. And um, 
And then, you know, all the families that that couldn't find their loved ones, um, they segregated us into this other major conference room and, um, you know, we're there and just crying and, and screaming. And that was five o'clock. And um, BSO, the Broward Sheriff's Office, just kept saying, uh, please send us a picture of your loved one. I mean, there's so much clergy in the room. Every rabbi in South Florida, every priest in South Florida is is in this conference room. Um, and uh, And they just kept saying to us, send us a picture. I'm like, I already sent you a picture. Yeah, you, you already know what he looks like. Where's my, where's, where's Alex? And um, so, you know, going backwards a little bit, I was in the car on the way there and, um, you know, we have Life 360 and I looked at it. Alex always had his phone on him. But I had a bad feeling because Alex's phone was still at that school. And um <sighs> I called my little boy, I called Ryan, Alex's big brother. And I said, uh, I said, I said, Ryan, we can't find Alex. And I said, he says, don't worry, dad, it'll be okay. I said, no, you don't understand, Ryan. I said, I don't think it's going to be okay. Alex's phone is still at that school. He's like, don't worry, dad, we're going to be okay. Um, so, you know, we ended up at the Marriott at five o'clock and then we don't find out until it was one or two in the morning. They made us sit there. Didn't give us any information, not, Hey, we know X, Y, and Z. We're going to come back at, at 10 and tell you, we're going to come back at 11. Nothing. Just every hour, just send us a picture, email us a picture of your loved one. That's uh, and then at one o'clock, I got called in. FBI knew nothing. They couldn't tell us anything. It's just ridiculous. You know, you got all this law enforcement there <laughs> and you don't know who's in the hospital, who's not in the hospital. And then at one o'clock, they called us in and and told us Alex was never coming home again. I cannot imagine what that statement must have felt like to you this is like 11 hours into this ordeal after the event began it happened at 221 in the afternoon when the murderer walked into uh, marjorie stoneman douglas high school and started shooting yes let's talk about alex for a second how old was he at this time alex was 14 he was in ninth grade and, uh, and he was a member of the marching band and yeah yeah and uh from all accounts I've heard, he he was a heck of a good kid. Yeah, yeah. Alex was wonderful. Just a really sweet, just a really sweet kid. And, you know, still uh still still would take a hug from me and, and was a good hugger, you know, even though kids, you know, his age were, you know, dad, don't do that. Um, he was really, really um a tender and, and kind little boy. He was a great musician. Uh he played in middle school. Uh, my his father, his grandfather, my dad, played the trombone in in college at at, at the Ohio State University, and uh, and and then Alex tried the trombone and he, he he really did well at it. So 
in middle school and he know and he knew that in 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 high school they didn't march with the uh the trombone so he doubled up and took baritone as well so that when he got into high school he could really uh be a good member of the band and and excel and they they trained hard you know in the hot florida summer uh and alex was a really good athlete alex loved to play basketball and uh and football and he won multiple championship championships on his Parkland Rec basketball team. He's he's really a great athlete as well, and his sisters miss miss him tremendously, and his brothers and my wife and I. I always worry about my kids. I have four kids, and two have already gone through the the high school thing. But that that freshman year is something I've always worried about. You know that making that transition because it's it's such a big leap. And it sounds like he was doing pretty well with it. I mean, playing in the band and he he found his place in school. Yeah. I mean, the band was really, uh, a, a, it was like a little, uh, you know, a little, little, little fraternity, uh, and sorority, um, for Alex, he made his best friends there. He, uh, he really learned what, what hard work meant and, and learned that if he worked hard, he could succeed and, and band taught him all those things. So, we are big supporters of the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas Eagle Regiment marching band. When you're there that day and you're you're at the reunification center and you're waiting for news, were you given any information at all as to what was going on, what had happened at the school, or were you just left there to wait your own devices? Yeah, no. Uh, the Broward Sheriff's Office did a horrible job of 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 keeping the families informed, and there were a lot of a lot of mistakes and a lot of failures. Uh, leading up to the tragedy, uh, during the day of the shooting, and and during the aftermath. Well, well let's let's talk about the stuff leading up to it, uh, because uh, the, quite honestly, uh, and I and I, I teach this. You know, it's best if we can stop this stuff before the tragic event happens. It doesn't matter how good the law enforcement response is once it happens, because the damage has already been done. All we can do is hope to mitigate it. What were some of the issues? Uh, the problems before this event happened that should have been addressed. Oh, I mean, uh, we we don't we don't have enough time to to go into all all of that. But I mean, because there were just so many failures, Michael. Um, you know, the Parkland murderer was a violent, violent individual since when since he was three years old, and um, they knew it. Uh, and and as he he was a menace. In his classrooms, he he tormented the kids and the teachers. Uh, they were afraid of him. Uh, he w- had all the red flags of a future school mass murderer. He was suicidal. He was homicidal. He killed and mutilated animals. And then when he turned 18, his mother bought him a gun. And this school, uh, he had an IEP. He accumulated dozens and dozens of behavioral incidents and referrals, and they never did anything. And um, as he got older, he got more violent, and there were no consequences. So we're all, and his IEP basically gave him a bubble of of protection from consequences. And uh, we're all in favor of, of giving kids a second chance, but but not 55 of them. And not at the expense of others. Exactly, exactly. They prioritized the rights of the Parkland murderer over the rights of every other kid in his class and and, and the teachers in that school. 
did, were, were you or, or your wife, were you aware of the issues with this, this dirt bag that was going on at the school? Or was that something that you were, were never notified about? Yeah, no, um, we had no idea that Alex was going to school with this violent, violent individual. And it wasn't until after the shooting that, that we found this out. Uh, after the shooting, uh, I got appointed to be a member of the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School Public Safety Commission. Our job was to investigate the shooting. We were the statewide investigative uh, body and come up with recommendations to make schools safer. And, and part of our uh, you know, job was to look at the data that schools were reporting, were required to report to the state, school safety data, data on violence that was happening in in Alex's school, uh, via, you know, data on numbers of weapons coming into school, numbers of fights, numbers of assaults, bullying. And what we found was that at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, they reported zeros across the board, uh, not just for one year, but for the three consecutive years prior to the shooting, they reported zeros. And so there was a culture of complacency, a culture of underreporting. Um, they didn't prioritize safety and security, and then that permeated, uh, you know, throughout the school. But there were also silos of information where no one had a full grasp of everything that was happening in in this individual's life. You know, he was able to accumulate over fifty five disciplinary incidents in school. And then law enforcement was at his house over 40 times. And neither one of those entities knew that, but law enforcement never arrested him. The FBI had tips that they didn't follow up on. The Broward Sheriff's Office had tips that they didn't uh, you know, properly investigate. And he had a, a threat assessment done on him in 2016 that was completely botched. That I think if it would have been done properly, Alex and the 16 others would still be here today. So there were failures upon failures upon failures. And then, and then that day, uh, you know, we had, I, I present around the country on, on Parkland on the lessons learned and the best practices that were developed after Parkland. And even that day, the law enforcement response was, you know, abhorrent and, and despicable and, and non, non-existent. Uh, all of the Barrett Sheriff's office, deputies that responded, they all waited outside, didn't go in for 11 minutes. And there were nine of them, including the, the only deputy with a gun on campus during the time of the shooting, Deputy Scott Peterson. He, upon going to the front of the building and hearing the gunshots, he got scared and then went behind and went and hid behind a concrete pillar for the next 48 minutes. He was subsequently charged with 17 counts of child neglect and his trial is going to be coming up shortly. So everybody failed our children that day and leading up to that day. On behalf of the profession that I worked in, I have to say I'm sorry because that is not the response that should have happened. And in fact, I use that right there in classes that I teach, because in law enforcement, we have this saying that, hey, my mission every single day is to go home safely at the end of my shift. And I tell people, you've got to stop saying that, because the only way that you can ensure that that happens is to do nothing during your shift. 
And in fact, if you look at the data on the number of people having heart attacks on duty, you probably should go sit in an emergency room. What our, what our goal, our mission should be every day is to do things in a tactically sound manner so that I go home safely at the end of my shift. It's a byproduct of doing things correctly, but we cannot remove risk from this job. And I actually bring up, I said, did that SRO in Parkland, did he accomplish his mission of going home safely at the end of his shift? Yeah, but there's a whole bunch of kids that will never, ever go home again because that coward stayed outside. Sometimes you have to go. That's what you signed up for. When you find that type of information out after this incident happened, what what's going through your mind? Because it, all I could tell is once I started hearing this stuff, it just pissed me off. It embarrassed me and it enraged me. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm I'm on the MSD commission. So, you know, uh, we we were, um, you know, formed I think it was three months after the shooting. And so we met every month thereafter. And it was heartbreaking, you know, because at every at every meeting, they're releasing more details of the tragedy. So unlike Uvalde, which has all these different investigations and every every one of them are different. We had one statewide investigative body, and that was the MSD commission that I that I sat on. And so during every meeting, it was it was heartbreaking. And I'm, I'm, I'm crying because I'm reliving the shooting all over again every time and to listen to these failures um you know and the ineptitude and in broward county was just just crushing um and and made me so angry and um exaggerated my, my grief uh made it made it worse uh you know just listening to the ineptitude in broward county and them them not fixing the things that that we knew were broken I mean, uh, it took Broward County a year to just put together an active assailant response policy a year. You know, when every other we, we required one from the state after the shooting that every county has a policy and Broward County was the last one to do it, you know, the uh, ground zero. So uh, they really added um, insult to injury by by their failures to to do the right thing and, and to enact the changes. But. You know, we're five years out. We just had the the five year mark. The the commemoration ceremony was on Valentine's night, and uh, schools are a lot safer now than than they were prior to the tragedy. We are enacting measures in Florida that no other state is doing. We have an armed school safety officer on every campus throughout the entire state, and we have over four thousand schools. We have a guardian program so that if if schools can't afford an SRO, it's over $100,000, they can take an existing personnel and send them through a sheriff-sponsored 144-hour program, and then they can carry concealed. Uh, we have an anonymous tip system throughout the state of Florida, so kids can now have a means to report individuals that are thinking about hurting themselves or others to prevent the next tragedy. We have uh, panic apps in every school. Uh, we have a notification system so that it's mandatory that if there's a threat to, to, against your school, every school is required to notify the parents. Uh, and and that, that didn't exist before. You know, we've done some big structural changes in the state. So we now have an office of school safety, which we didn't have before. We have a very robust office 
uh, where we've got regional officers that fan out across the state to make sure schools are implementing these these school safety changes. So uh, we we get it. Um, we have great leadership in this state that prioritize safety and security above all else. And they understand that it doesn't matter wh- what Alex got on that on his English test if if he gets murdered in his classroom. So, well, you mentioned that law enforcement had been out to this uh, shooter's house several times. Did, did you ever find out why no action was taken when they went out to his house? What? Why wasn't this cut off at, at the pass early on? A lot of those those instances were the mother not being able to control her kids. Uh, they would run away. She would call the cops. They would be fighting. She would call the cops. Uh, one of them would lock himself in the bedroom. She would call the cops. You know, they would crash the house. They would destroy the house. She would call the cops. Um, a lot of it wasn't arrestable offenses, but at some point, somebody needs to be introduced to the criminal justice system because if not, if no consequences, this is what happens. I think from a law enforcement perspective, when it comes to SROs, we, we, we have to stop looking at that as a place where we can put people that are are near the end of their career, uh, maybe aren't quite as motivated, may, maybe stop looking at it as a place to hide somebody. We need to put capable, dedicated, motivated people in there to provide the response that's necessary when something happens, but even more important that they're proactive and they're looking for those warning signs and taking action before something bad happens. But that requires a culture change in law enforcement. It seems like Florida is doing it better than most, but I'm kind of at a loss of how we can take it farther. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, you're right. We shouldn't have to have a horrible mass shooting in every state for people to take it seriously and to change that mindset that it's not going to happen in their community because we didn't think it was going to happen in Parkland. I guarantee you they didn't think it was going to happen in Sandy Hook, and they certainly didn't think it was going to happen in Uvalde. But you are also correct in in your reference to the coward of Broward, Deputy Scott Peterson. He was basically just retired on duty. He, he said in an interview that if he actually pulled his gun out and tried to pull the trigger, flowers come, would come out of it. So, um, but that's not, that's changed a lot now. We have a great sheriff in Greg Tony. Uh, the former sheriff was, was removed by the governor, Scott Israel, uh, due to his ineptitude. And, and now, uh, you know, we get it. And, you know, the sheriff, uh, our SROs that are, that are in, in Broward County public schools, they're slinging carbines. So we, we're not, we don't mess around anymore. If, a, if an individual makes a threat to shoot up a school, you're getting arrested. And, and um, so we take, we take what people say and, and what they do very, very seriously and do everything we can to prevent the next Parkland. Now, the, the school shooting that took place at Oxford, that actually is the county in which I live and the county in which I, I worked. And we do. We as human beings, we like to to think that it's not going to happen here. It's not going to happen here. And just over a year after it happened in Oxford, just this week, it happened to Michigan State University. And when you heard that news coming out about what was going on at Michigan State, what's going on? What's going through your mind at that point? 
you know, it's we're five years in and I and I I said that that this was the hardest one. And it was the combination of I'm usually not here. I, I try not to be in Parkland during the uh, the commemorations. It's it's just so hard, you know, just just driving by that school every day. And uh, so being here was hard, but the compounding uh, dealing with with the grief of Alex and and knowing that the three other other families um, from Michigan State uh, are never going to see their children again was really a lot for me to handle. You know, so it was really hard, and my heart breaks for for those families because I know what they're going through, and I know what they're going to go through. And I lost my wife in in two thousand eight, and that was hard. But but losing losing a child, having them predecease you, no nobody should ever have to go through that. Uh, if I could, can I share a story about something happened related to the Michigan State shooting this week? I have a friend who, who retired from law enforcement recently, a guy named Scott Pacini. And Scott has a daughter at Michigan State. And when he heard what was going on there, he put his stuff in his vehicle and he hauled ass up to Michigan State because his daughter was in the sorority house and they'd gotten the shelter in place warning. And he goes up there and he doesn't grab his daughter and take her home. My man sat there and provided security for the entire house until the threat was over with. Man, I get choked up thinking about it because that is what is needed from law enforcement. Scott's retired law enforcement, but that's what's needed. That That's the type of protection that our kids need, that our kids deserve. But even better than that, we need that type of protection on the front end, that when there's a threat, when there is someone who we believe could become a threat, we have to take that proactive action because all the other stuff, the lockdowns, all these type things, those are post-fact and the bad thing has already happened. And I, I don't know how we as a society can understand that we need to get out in front of this problem. We talk about it a lot, but we got to get out in front of the problem. No, I, you know, after the shooting, so the Parkland murderer never entered any of the classrooms. He shot through the glass window of Alex's classroom door from the hallway and then went and shot into Alex's class where he killed Alex and two two other little girls and injured five others and then went classroom to classroom. And then after the first floor, he went to the second floor and then the third floor. And on the third floor, he set up his bipod and tried to do a Las Vegas, uh, tried to shoot at all the other children that were streaming out of all the other buildings. So Marjorie Stoneman Douglas is a huge campus. Over 3000 kids are on that campus. There's 13 buildings uh, he attacked one building. So all, so when the fire alarm went off from, from the gun, from the smoke in one building that triggered the fire alarm in all buildings, and like like all of the other 12 masonry buildings were all going to go up in flames all at the same time. So everybody is streaming out. And so he was trying to shoot at all of them. Thank God he was unsuccessful because the building had hurricane glass and the bullets fragmented. So he got frustrated, dropped the gun with hundreds of rounds of ammunition and then fled and blended in. But initially, I wanted to make every school have bulletproof glass because Alex was 
if the glass in Alex's classroom was bulletproof, Alex would still be here today because he didn't enter any of the classrooms. And and no active shooter has breached a, a locked classroom door. But my evolution over the last couple of years in my work with the Secret Service and the FBI has brought me to the realization that, as you mentioned, by the time the gun comes on campus, it's too late. You know, we've got to do things left of bang before before the individual, you know, makes that decision to commit that act of violence before, uh, you know, they get their hands on the gun. And, and that's on the that's on the prevention side. And so I, I agree with you. And that that's the reason why I mean, Florida's done a lot on on, on school hardening, but we've also put a, a main a large emphasis on the prevention side. And that's that's implementing threat assessment teams in every school in the state of Florida, like we've done. We're never going to be done. Uh, we're always going to be adapting and improving school safety in Florida, as I hope every other state is. And, you know, it's just just terrible what what happened at Oxford and, you know, how they never checked the kids backpack. And um, that that was just horrible after all the threats that the teacher saw. And then for them to send him back in the classroom, I mean, you know, in all the press conferences, I never heard any law enforcement official mention threat assessment because they're not doing threat assessments uh, in Michigan. I hope that changes. And and there's a lot of changes that hopefully Michigan will make that that Florida has. We have a red flag law here in Florida. Uh, Michigan does not. We've saved a lot of people's lives in, in Florida through a red flag law, you know, which gives you the ability to take away an individual's weapon with a court order if they are deemed a threat to themselves or others. So we've used that over 8,000 times and uh, we've saved a lot of lives. You talked about uh, working with the Secret Service. That's something I heard you talk on before and how if we make a threat against the president, the vice president, members of Congress, how quickly they act at uh, making sure any individual that makes a threat against those uh, members in elected office are uh, addressed almost immediately. But when it comes to our kids, we're not quite as fast. What is the disconnect there? Why are we fast if it's elected official, but threats against kids not as quick to, to jump in? I wish I knew the answer. Uh, you know, I think that that people just don't think it's going to happen in their community. They're not just they're just not taking this seriously. And and it's really unacceptable if you have individuals that are they're not take they're not prioritizing the safety and security of your kids. They need to be gone and and get you know leaders and officials in in place that that do take this seriously because we know what complacency uh, you know produces and 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 Parkland is is the face of complacency. You know, when we interviewed the principal of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, when my commission interviewed him and, and we asked him if there was a threat to shoot up your school, did you expect to know about it? He said, no, he was completely disinterested and uninvolved in the threat assessment process. We asked him how many times there had been a threat to your school. He had no idea. He said, maybe 10. He, he didn't know. So, that's my my mission in life is to is to get my message out is to tell and that's why you know i thank you for having me on the show michael and brand because the more people that know about what happened in parkland and the failures the more we can do to correct those failures and make sure that this never happens again well the thing i think the thing that probably bothers me the most is, is that it 
in so many of these cases, it's not that we didn't know that there was a potential threat. It's that we didn't act upon our knowledge of a potential threat. Um, there, there's a human behavior expert named Greg Williams that he goes, listen, when somebody makes a threat, they've told you their intent. It doesn't really matter what their motive is. They've told you what they intend to do, and you must take action to prevent that terrible event from taking place. It just seems like there's an unwillingness to believe to take seriously these threats. And these individuals don't just snap overnight they exhibit all of them exhibit concerning behavior over time and so see something say something works we you don't hear about all all of the threats that are averted but every day law enforcement is stopping uh, and preventing acts of targeted violence and saving people's lives but in the in the united states there is just not uh that sense of of uh, vigilance and and i just don't think americans really want to be in that headspace i know it's not a, it's not a pleasant headspace to be in you know like if you're in israel you're constantly you know thinking about protection and making sure that your family is safe because you know you're under constant threat from enemies all around you but in the united states they just want to act like you know we live in the garden of eden and there's there's a lot of evil out there and and we need to, you know, have have a, a more vigilant mindset because it's not just schools. It can happen anywhere. If you're at a Fourth of July parade, a Walmart, uh, a mall, these are life lessons that that children and adults need to learn. Because unfortunately, this is happening all too common. I think it's unfortunate because because of the topic, people are uncomfortable speaking about it with their kids yet they have no trouble speaking about fire danger or dangers that vehicles present, you know, playing in the yard. Uh, we don't do it to scare them, but I, I don't want my kids paranoid, but I want them prepared. We're better off as a society if we do that. If somebody wanted more information about your project, the Safe Schools for Alex, what, what's, what's the best place for them to go and get some information about that? They can go to our website, safeschoolsforalex.org. We have great resources on there. We have the 10 best practices to make your school safer. We've got a school safety dashboard. So it's the first dashboard for parents and, and schools and law enforcement where everyone can go online, type in your school and see exactly what is happening inside your classroom. Because most parents like like me, we dropped our kids off and we have no idea what's happening inside the classrooms. But with the with the dashboard, parents can now go online and see the numbers of weapons incidents being brought into your school, the number of bullying incidents, the number of uh, the amount of violence that's happening inside your school, the number of kids getting suspended. And so the dashboard's purpose is to reduce violence on campus. It's to give parents information uh, and really lift that blindfold off their eyes to tell them what's happening inside their school. They have a right to know, even though even though the principal of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas said there was no drug problem, he locked the bathrooms on the first and the third floor uh, to prevent kids from vaping. And then during the shooting, it had disastrous consequences because kids tried to go hide in the bathroom and were were shot. Um, at point blank range when the murderer came up to them because they were in the alcove and couldn't get in the bathroom. So parents have a right to know, you know, schools can say whatever they want, but we've got to make sure that uh, at least in Florida, we know that schools are reporting accurately because we need that information 
to to make schools safer because schools can't do this alone. Um, parents need to be involved and they should be involved in what's happening on campus, the amount of drugs and vaping that's happening on campus. So uh, it's it's very it's very, very important. Well, as a parent, as I'm sitting here listening, what and I'm sure there's lots of parents that are sitting here listening. What steps do we need to take in order to be more proactive? What's the first step that we can get our foot in the door and say, hey, we need our community, our schools to report better. I just feel like I'm an average Joe. I can't make a difference. But you're saying we can. Where do we start? That's the main thing that we need to get across. Yeah, I think I think the, the first thing that parents need to do is, is become educated. And, and, and what are the school safety best practices and there are things, there are low cost, no cost things that, that every school can, can do. So just to give you an example, in Parkland, we talked about how the murderer did not enter any of the classrooms. Um, and so he shot through the glass wall. Well, kids tried to go hide in that safer area of the classroom, uh, also known as the safer corner, uh, but they couldn't get in there because the teacher's desk and the file cabinet was in the safer corner. So it's about classroom design. It's it's about uh, you know having a panic app so that law enforcement can can get to their you know immediate notification. But it's part of that education process, and we we make it very very easy on our website. If you go to safeschoolsforalex.org under school safety resources, there is a a list of ten things that every parent can do to make their school safe. Uh, there's schoolsafety.gov, which is the federal school safety clearinghouse. Uh, it was an idea that I came up with after I traveled the country, because what I found was that some school districts were doing a really good job, but the rest of the country didn't know about it. And so at the time, President Trump had, had commissioned the Federal Commission on School Safety Report after Parkland and he, he agreed, he liked my idea to create this federal school safety clearinghouse. And so he did, he established it in the Department of Homeland Security. And the all these best practices, it's a one-stop shop for all school safety best practices, resources, and grants are now housed on schoolsafety.gov. And then I worked with President Biden to, to take the, the bill that was named after Alex, the Luke and Alex School Safety Act, and, and turn that into law. So one thing that I recommend for all parents is to make sure that their school goes on schoolsafety.gov and fills out their readiness questionnaire. On schoolsafety.gov, it's 10 questions that every school can go online and fill out. Uh, there are things like uh, that ask questions about their training, about their active shooter drills, they ask questions about, do they have a threat assessment team? All the best practices, they ask questions to gauge their readiness, uh, their emergency preparedness. And then after the school district fills out these 10 questions, it prints up a tailored PDF based on their answers to these questions that identifies what their priority number one should be to, to fix where their gaps are in their school emergency planning. And then based on their gaps, it directs them to grant dollars. And on schoolsafety.gov, there's billions and billions of dollars of grants that are available for schools to, to fix these, these safety gaps. So 
And this is all on our website and our list of our 10, 10 best practices. One of the best practices is to go to schoolsafety.gov. You know, everyone can reach out to safeschoolsforalex.org. They can go online. Uh, we have five states that we have a dashboard and our goal is to do it across the country. So, you know, uh, if anybody would love to like to support Safe Schools for Alex and our efforts, we really appreciate it. Uh, we're a small nonprofit, but uh, we have a big footprint. So uh, we're working hard to do everything we can to to make schools safer and reduce violence on campus. Well, I think it's important as we close to, to point out that there's a shared responsibility from the schools, from law enforcement, but from parents as well, that those three entities must work together to ensure safe schools for our kids. And it's about holding each other accountable. And we have to be willing to be held accountable when we're not doing the best that we can. We have to be willing to admit it, but then be willing to go and fix it. But Max, as we close, I just want to say again how much I admire you and what you do. I, I, I just don't think I could do it, man. I'm, I'm choking up over here, but I do want to thank you for what you do because you are making a difference. And, uh, Alex, I, I can't help but think how proud he'd be of the work that you're doing, but I'm sorry that it cost that in order for the work to be done. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And it was good spending time with you. And, I hope I hope everybody listens. It's it's important. You know, we we can prevent the next tragedy. We just have to have a a, a vigilant and a, a, a security mindset and get out of that mindset uh, that Parkland had that it's it, it's not going to happen here. So, um, thank you for having me, and it was great spending time with you guys. Well, if we can ever assist you in any way, uh, please let us know. Uh, what you do is certainly worthwhile. But thank you for being here today, Brett. Um, this was a tough one, dude. Yeah, uh, I have a son who's a sophomore. He's in the band. I, I, it, it's it's tough to sit here, and I don't think anyone would fault Max for not wanting to speak out. But on behalf of uh, you know parents alike, we thank you for being an advocate for change and informing others of what we can do and how we can be proactive and what you've done and what you continue to do is 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 inspiring and uh like mike said alex would certainly be proud of all the efforts that that you're spearheading it's amazing what you're doing and the change that you're bringing for schools across the country thank you thank you brian